Hi everybody, David Guzik here, here for another one of our weekly question and answer times where I sit here in the little office I have here at my home in Santa Barbara and I do the best I can, either live or recorded as today's is, to answer questions that you either submit in chat when we do the live ones or ones that come in through email or social media or what have you. Today we are recorded because on this particular Thursday I'm not at home. I'm getting away for a few days with my wife, Ingalil, and I'm not going to give you the details as to where we're going or what we're doing, but I just got to say I'm really looking forward to it as I record this, and we're just going to be off having that fun on Thursday at our normal time. I should be back next Thursday, the following one, to have another live program, if God wills, and if I live, I'll be there and we'll do it. Okay, I want to start off with a question today that is actually, to me, is a fascinating question. Fascinating, not so much because I find the question itself fascinating, but because this is a question that has never really interested me, but I know that a lot of people are interested in this question. And here it is. Where did Cain get his wife? Now, Cain, of course, was one of the sons, the second son of Adam and Eve. Excuse me, the first son of Adam and Eve. What am I confusing this? Uh, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they were together there in the Garden of Eden. The fall happened. God put a curse upon them uh, and upon the earth and upon uh, Satan himself. And sometime after they were driven from the Garden of Eden, they had a child. And their firstborn son was Cain. The secondborn son was Abel. And then after Abel, they had a son named Seth. Now, these are the only children of Adam and Eve that are mentioned by name, Cain, Abel, and Seth. And of course, we know that Cain murdered Abel. But apparently, the human race did not die with Cain and Seth. We know that Abel couldn't continue the human race because he was dead. Uh, Cain and Seth apparently had wives and they had children and this is where the human race came from. And so this is why the people get the question, where did Cain get his wife? Of course, you could just as easily ask the question, where did Seth get his wife? Where did the first human beings, if we take the account in the Garden of Eden seriously as history, which I want you to know, I certainly do. Uh, I know that in some ways it's written in a poetic form, but it also has this real note of history about it, too. And when the rest of the Bible refers back to what happened in the Garden of Eden, it tends to treat it as something historical, not just something legendary or merely poetic. Okay, back to Cain and Seth and where did they get their wives? This is the answer to the question. Now, there wasn't a separate creation going on somewhere else in the earth. There weren't space aliens that came down and brought these uh, wives to Cain and Seth. No, the answer is actually pretty simple. Uh, Adam and Eve had many other sons and daughters who were not named. And Cain married his sister. Seth married his sister. Uh, Genesis chapter 5, verse 4 says this. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years and he had sons and daughters. Kind of the implication there is that he had many sons and daughters, that the sons and daughters of Adam did not end with Cain and Abel and Seth, of course, Abel being murdered by Cain. Uh, 
So really, that's just a simple idea. It's not very complicated. It's not something we really have to trouble ourselves with. Now, some people raise the objection, and I can see why the objection is raised. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. How could this be with somebody marrying their sister? Doesn't the Bible command against that? Yes, the Bible later commands against this kind of intermarriage. Uh, not intermarriage, uh, the marrying of a close relative such as a brother or sister. And the idea is usually expressed in these ways. And I can't say I know for sure that this is the case, but to me it seems like a plausible solution that in the early days of creation, the genetic material of mankind was largely uncorrupted. And because of that lack of corruption, there was not the danger of deformity or some kind of impairment or disability from the marrying of close relatives as there is when two people marry today and have children when they're too close in their genetic pool. So the human race at that time being more pure in its genetics, there was not the same danger for that. Later on, as time progressed and the genetic pool of humanity became somewhat degraded, maybe polluted is too strong of a word, but let's just say degraded, then it became more important for God to make this command where a person could not marry their close relative, such as a brother or a sister. But in the early days of humanity, that wasn't the case. So where did Cain get his wife? From his sister. Where did uh, Seth get his wife? From his sister. And we can imagine that in those first few generations, there was just a lot of intermarrying. And, you know, it kind of occurs to me that at the very beginnings of the human race, this would have seemed normal to them. It just would have seemed the way it was. This is just how humanity worked. Uh, but of course, as time went on, things changed radically in that regard. Okay, let's get on to a next question here. Uh, the next question is sort of a follow-up from something we dealt with last week. The idea was last week, a woman named Andrea asked the question about the idea of being above reproach when it comes to being a elder or a leader in the church. And what she wanted to know was how that standard for being above reproach might have changed through the years. And at first, I didn't really get what she was talking about. But later on, she sent in an explanation that made it more clear to me. What she was saying was that, OK, the idea of being above reproach, reproach has the idea of how would we call it? Disgrace or shame in a societal sense. It's not a sense of self-shame. It's what other people are ashamed or scandalized or look down on you upon. Um, you know, someone who has a very bad drinking habit and is a drunk all the time and can't keep their life together and is always losing their job, they are under some sense of disgrace in society as large. Now, it's kind of interesting, is it, that somebody can be a bad alcoholic and if they keep their life together, if they're able to somewhat, they oftentimes don't have the same disgrace. But we just imagine somebody whose life is falling apart because of their sin. In an obvious sense, there's a sense of shame and disgrace. That's kind of what reproach is. And the question had to be, and I'll just kind of read her writing here. She says, while today it seems to be so common uh, or it's not so common uh, for pastors to drink alcohol, which was probably something that was different years ago. Or the fact that today divorced pastors may come into leadership positions where maybe in a previous generation uh, that was absolutely no. And so uh, there's just should this question be revisited? OK, I, I think it's a very interesting question, because first of all, we have to say that being well, 
let me use the word that's used in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, and in Titus chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, where it's talking about the qualifications for an elder. The word that's used there is blameless. Matter of fact, it doesn't use the exact phrase, at least not in the New King James Bible, which is the one I usually read and study from. At least not in the New King James Bible does it use the exact phrase above reproach relevant to elders and deacons. But it uses that idea. Here's 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7, that an elder must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. In other words, the leader in God's church has to have a good testimony among people who are outside, Otherwise, it'll be a disgrace to the community and a snare of the devil, both for the church and for that individual. And Andrea, I think you bring up a very valid point that what is deemed a disgrace in the community will change from generation to generation. Let me just give kind of a crazy example. I am sure that in the early days of the automobile, that if a pastor owned an automobile, it might seem like a crazy excess. Can you believe the pastor? He owns an automobile, and it would put him into some sense of disgrace, maybe in the community, because they thought he was living such a high, opulent, wealthy life. Well, today, if a pastor has an automobile, at least in the Western world, most people don't think anything of it. Big deal. So you can see how, in some ways, those standards change from generation to generation. Now, this is not the only standard for an elder. We remind ourselves that there are many qualities that mark an elder, and most of the qualities that mark a leader among God's people have nothing to do with how they are perceived in the community. It's what their character is and how they act. This idea of having a good testimony, being blameless, or being above reproach, it has more to do with how the person is perceived both in the church and in the broader community. And we don't mind saying that those standards can shift from time to time. But the basic thing is there has to be the character requirements that are spoken of repeatedly in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus chapter 1. And added to that are the things about the man's reputation, uh, being a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach, is as 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7 says. And so, yes, there is a sense in which some of the idea of being above reproach or under reproach, that kind of thing, there is some part of it that changes or shifts from generation to generation. But the general character aspects of being a leader among God's people, that sticks. That's the same from generation. So it's a combination of things that change and things that can change somewhat. Okay, here's another question. The third question that we're going to deal with today comes from someone, and they ask this. Can a Christian direct angels? And then they go on to say, I was asked to watch a healing pastor, and she said something about doing this. I believe that Jesus is the only one who orders what angels do, i.e. deliver healing from him. And then she says that Kathy is the one who gave this question, that she loves the series of teachings on Hebrews. Well, that's an interesting question. Can Christians direct angels? And I'll give you the quick answer. No, I don't believe we can. 
I don't believe anywhere the scriptures say that we are in charge of directing angels. Angels don't work under our direction. Now, I can see where there would be a little bit of confusion about this among God's people. Because even though we are not the boss of angels, there's a sense in which they work for our benefit. In other words, we're not their bosses, but they do work for our benefit. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14 says this of angels. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? And it's a rhetorical question, which means the answer is yes. Angels are ministering spirits, and they're sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. So if you're a believer, if you will inherit salvation, then angels are sent forth to minister, to help, to aid, to assist you. But notice this, they are sent forth. You don't send them forth. God sends them forth. So angels do not work under us. That is, they're not under our command. We don't have the power to direct angels, but there's a sense in which, at least in some regard, I'm not going to say this is true of every angelic being, but in some regard, God's had angels who work on our behalf for our benefit. So I think you're right. I don't think we should go around kind of with that delusion that we can direct angels. It's very interesting how people sometimes will have a an excessive fascination with angels. Now, I'm not saying that they're worthy of no attention. The Bible talks about them. And so they're certainly worthy of some attention that we could give them. But be careful of people who seem to have a overemphasis upon angelic beings. They seem to be too interested in them. Okay, here comes the next question. It says, Hi, Pastor. I wanted to know if you had any books or resources that you could recommend that would help me in anchoring our kids in Christ, our personal kids and the kids at our church. Our church is very small and our pastor and leaders are stretched thin, so we don't have a discipleship program and I want to help in whatever way I can. All right, you know, this is a great question. Uh, let, let me say, first of all, just for a simple recommendation, I feel kind of terrible because I intended to have our copy here in my hand and show it to you, but you can just look it up. It's very easily found. There's a great resource out there for kids called the Jesus or the, the Storybook Bible, and it's just a very simple thing written by Sally Lloyd-Jones. It sold a couple million copies. It's very popular. It's very good. You know, it's on my mind because just a week ago, I was teaching at a kids program and a WANA program at our church, Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara. And for the first time ever, uh, at least at Calvary Chapel, Santa Barbara, I taught the Awana lesson and I kind of dealt with a story out of the storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. So um, I asked the kids, how many of you have this at home? And so many of them raised their hands. It seemed very impressive to me that this is a popular resource. So a good storybook Bible like that is very helpful. And again, I'd recommend the one by Sally Lloyd-Jones, but there's other ones out there as well. Look, I think we need to be talking to our kids about God. We need to be praying for our kids. We need to be praying with our kids. But I don't think there's any real secrets to reaching kids, at least not in my mind. Now, I'm the first one to say I'm not an expert. You can find people who know a lot more about ministering to children than I do. But at least in the way that I think of it, there aren't any real secrets for ministering to children. What it is, is you deal with the same things that you deal with adults, but you deal with them at their level. 
So you talk about the Bible, but at their level. You pray with them, but at their level. You talk about living the Christian life, but at their level. And so you just do that and you love them, love them, love them, and try not to make the Christian life seem to them as it's mostly keeping a list of rules so that God will be happy with you. Instead, preach the gospel, the love of Jesus Christ for the children. Be basic, be simple, and um, if you can use books and resources along the way, all the better. Maybe in the comments section, you or one of our listeners, one of our viewers, can write down things that they have found helpful as a resource. And we, as a little YouTube community here on the Enduring Word YouTube channel, you can help out somebody else by suggesting kids' materials that have been helpful for you. I'm sure that our questioner, Neely, I think that's you, I think you will appreciate that. So go right ahead and um, we'll do exactly what we can to just disciple people, train them in the basics of the Christian life, the word, prayer, worship, evangelism, not regarding it as something complicated, but again, it's not something easy either. It's something that we want to pursue uh, for all of our Christian life, from being a little child to being a grown-up as well. Okay, let's go on to another question. C.W. asked this question, How would you go about showing someone in your family scripturally that they shouldn't accept prophecies, dreams, visions, etc. as truth. Well, that's a great thing. I think I would go to a couple passages like this. Again, let me read CW's question one more time just so we know what we're talking about. She says, how would you go about showing someone in your family scripturally that they shouldn't accept prophecies, they put prophecies in um, quotation marks, dreams, visions, etc. as truth? Well, I would take them to passages such as 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 20 and 21 that say this, do not despise prophecies, test all things. Or something like this, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. In other words, supposed prophetic words, visions, dreams, they are all to be judged by mature believers. And how are they to be judged? Folks, there's no great mystery to that. First and more foremost, every word is to be judged by the Word of God. See, I got it right here. Holy Bible. That's what you judge things by. This is our standard. God will never speak in contradiction to His Word. And we believe that the Scriptures are powerful, that they're real, that they are sufficient for us, and that God may give some kind of direction through a dream, through a prophetic word, through a vision— all of it is to be judged not only by the scriptures, but by mature saints who can sense whether or not that is what the Holy Spirit would be speaking to those people at that time, or whether it's not just a vain imagination from somebody. But this is what we have to come to again and again. Everything is judged by the standard of God's Word. You know, I am among those who believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for today that God can still speak through prophecies, that God can still speak through dreams and visions and such. But I'll tell you what, I don't believe that every gift of the Holy Spirit is for today. I hope it didn't shock anybody when I say that. Let me explain to you the one gift of the Holy Spirit that I do not believe is for today. Now, I can't say that this is a gift that's specifically described in the Scriptures. 
to me, it's an implied gift of the Holy Spirit, but it's very important for us to understand that this implied gift of the Holy Spirit is not being given today. What gift is that? Listen, it's the gift of hearing God perfectly. That gift is no longer being given by God today. Now, again, I'm the first one to admit that we don't have a specific mention of that gift in the New Testament. To me, that's a gift by implication. But I believe it very strongly that when God was moving through the men who brought us the Bible, the New Testament, the Old Testament, God moved through those authors. He moved through them and gave them the gift of, so to speak, hearing God perfectly. In other words, they were able to perfectly perceive what God was saying, and they were perfect conduits for God's message. That gift is not being given today. Nobody hears God's word perfectly. Now, God is God. There's only one way God can do anything, and that's perfect. So the problem is not that God does not speak perfectly. The problem is he is no longer giving the gift of hearing God perfectly. Therefore, prophecies need to be tested. Somebody can't say, well, I'm a prophet. I say this. Obey what I say. No, test it. I had a vision. Believe what I say. No, test it. I had a dream. Everybody, no, test it. Test it by God's word and test it by mature discernment of spirits. This is what God wants us to do. And so um, nobody can hear God perfectly. Therefore, anybody who purports to have a word from God should be very humble in the way they present it. I personally get a little bit nervous when I hear people just very casually say, well, the Lord told me this, the Lord told me that, the Lord told me another thing. Now, it's not that I don't believe God speaks today, but I think we should be very humble and reserved about our ability to hear God's word. I feel much more comfortable when people speak like this. Well, I think the Lord may have directed me thus and so. Uh, Perhaps God was saying this to me. Perhaps the Lord was leading. And if in some unique situation you feel a great deal of confidence, well, then explain it. But we shouldn't act as if we have some kind of hotline to God that other people do not have. That is a strange thing, and it creates a strange dynamic among God's people. You want a hotline to God? Read your Bible. (laughs) You want to know what God says for your life? Read the Bible. You want a sure and certain word of God for your life? Read your Bible. And again, I'm not saying that that excludes the possibility that God may not or that God might speak to a person in a supernatural way, but it begins and it ends with the revealed word of God in his word, in his written word. So again, I hope that's helpful for you, CW. Uh, I hope that's just of a little bit of help. Okay, uh, I think we just got a few more questions, maybe one more. Here's a message from Haley, and she's referring to something on the Enduring Word website. Again, let me just tell you, EnduringWord.com is where I have a commentary on the entire Bible in English and in Spanish. If you know Spanish-speaking believers, pastors, teachers, tell them about my commentary on Enduring Word, and maybe it'll be helpful for them. Look, I I know no commentary is helpful for every person. And if somebody reads my commentary and just doesn't do anything for them, well, then it doesn't hurt my feelings. But I know that what I do is helpful for some people in English, in Spanish, and in an increasing number of languages. I'm very excited. Uh, Acts in Chinese is going to go up in the next couple of weeks, and that's thrilling to me. Okay, in any regard, 
Uh, Holly says that on the website, she reads this statement in her statement of faith. I believe, because if you go to EnduringWord.com, there's a statement of faith. And here's what it says. I believe also in the laying on of hands for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, for ordination of pastors, elders, and deacons, and for the receiving of the gifts of the Spirit of healing. Is this only for church leadership or to all believers? Well, Holly, let me answer that question. Just say yes and no. You see, if you take that statement apart that's on our website as a statement of faith, part of it is for all believers no matter what, but then there's other parts of it that are directed towards leaders. For example, I believe also in the laying of the hands for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's for all believers. That's for every believer to have what Jesus promised as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's for everybody. But then in the next phrase, it says, for the ordination of pastors, elders, or deacons. That aspect of laying on of hands in the sense of ordination, ordaining people to pastoral office, that's only for church leaders and only after those people have been tested and approved and and just determined that God's call, God's ordination is upon them. And then the end phrase is, and for the receiving of the gifts of the Spirit of healing, that is something that can be given to any believer. So if there's three aspects to the statement there in a statement of faith, the laying on of hands for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's for every believer, the ordination of pastors, elders, and deacons, that's for leaders, and then the third one for the receiving of the gifts of the Spirit, that's for all believers. So, Holly, I hope that helps. And I hope this brief time together of us taking a look at these questions today, I hope that's of some help to you. Again, I very much look forward next week to another live session. Whenever we can do it live, I enjoy it so much. So if you can join us next Thursday, 12 noon Pacific time, do it. And we'll have another one of our live question and answer. Again, unless something strange comes up and I have to record one ahead of time. But this is for this particular week, these questions that we've dealt with today. Thank you for those who have sent in your questions. Thank you to all those who are viewers. Thank you to the people who subscribe. You know, we're very pleased that we get more and more people who subscribe to the Enduring Word uh, YouTube channel, uh, the people who use the website, and especially I want to thank you for the people who pray for the ongoing work of Enduring Word. It is really wonderful to see what God is doing, and what he continues to do through this ministry. Uh, And I just ask that you just keep praying for us, that God would not only continue the work and bless the work, but that he would just provide it with every resource that we need. I know that when God's people are praying, exciting things happen. And so thank you for joining us today. God bless you, and I hope that you can join us again the next time we do one of our question and answer times.